0: Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll talk to one of my first grief guides, author, coach, and renowned business strategist Stephanie Zamora about her coming back after the unexpected suicide of her ex-boyfriend. Also on the show today, a listener faces the pain of both loving and grieving their abusive father, and I revisit one of my very first YouTube videos called Stop Telling Your Kids Not to Fall in Love. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who gives people the tools, space, and support to come back to life after loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone, because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I am so glad you're here. I want to start off the show with a little thank you and celebration. Just this past Saturday night I got the news that this podcast has been downloaded over 1000 times. If you follow me on social media you saw all of my confetti emojis and hearts and tears about it. So I just want to say again here thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting this piece of heart work I've just been getting so much feedback from friends and listeners and random people on Facebook groups that this podcast is helping them spot and work through grief in their lives. And I'm just so excited to continue normalizing grief and loss through this medium. We really do all experience loss at some point in our lives and having a place to put it, having all the voices of wisdom and experience I'm collecting here does wonders for all these grieving hearts who don't know which way is up or maybe just haven't found the right words to express their pain. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Please keep listening and tell a friend to subscribe to the podcast as well. I want to announce one more thing before we jump into the top of the show, and that is that my very first milestone episode is approaching, episode number 10. I've decided that every 10th episode will be what I like to call a fun one, quote unquote, where we talk about grief in the context of something really lighthearted and funny and whimsical and pop culture-y, uh, for episode 10, which is coming up in two weeks on July 19th, I want to talk about my all-time absolute favorite TV show, The Golden Girls. Grief on The Golden Girls. The Golden Girls was such a groundbreaking show when it came to addressing issues like coming out, growing older, job loss, the AIDS crisis, getting divorced, and absolutely dying. I want to devote a whole show to talking about how my favorite girls, Dorothy, Rose, Blanche, and Sophia presented grief to the world through their show. We'll pull from specific episodes, we'll talk about overarching show themes, and just chat about how grief came up through this hilarious, awesome 1980 show. It will be a whole episode devoted to grief on the Golden Girls. So what I want from you, my listeners, is this. If you happen to catch an episode of the Golden Girls on Hallmark or Lifetime or Logo, or if you have it on your computer like I do, if you watch the Golden Girls in the next two weeks, and you see an element of grief in an episode that you're watching, call or write into the show and let us know what you saw. It could be a grief that parallels your own life or something that you'd never thought of before. If it's a loss, it counts. Then on Wednesday, July 19th, you'll hear your comments aired on the show, along with my thoughts on grief on the Golden Girls. So, for example, we could talk about how Dorothy and Stan's divorce permeates all seven seasons of the show. We could talk about the fact that Rose was adopted and never knew her real parents. We could talk about Blanche's shock and finding out her father cheated on her mother when she was going through his personal items after his death. We could talk about Sophia's many visits to heaven and her strolls down memory lane with Sal. The topics are absolutely up to you, grief growers. I can't wait to produce this fun one show with you in celebration of our 10th episode. So please call and write in Grief and the Golden Girls. I am so excited to hear from you and so excited to create this show for you. So today at the top of the show, I want to revisit one of my old YouTube videos. Before I started podcasting, I would jump on Facebook Live once a week and do these like 8 to 15 minute long videos about grief and loss and the things that I was learning. I download the videos and then re-upload them to YouTube so more people could see them. And this past week, I stumbled across one of my very first videos on grief and loss. So it was kind of a time warp for me. The video is called Stop Telling Your Kids Not to Fall in Love. Yeah, it's a really shocking title and it's definitely aimed at parents, but I think its message can be applied to other areas of our lives as well. In a nutshell, it's about children, death, and the desire to protect our hearts from heartbreak as long as we can. What inspired this video was actually a one-on-one session I was doing with one of my clients through the grief recovery method. There's an exercise in the early weeks of the program that asks you to list out all of the things you've heard about grief, loss, and death growing up. This mostly relates to the six grief myths, which I talked about in episode five, but there's also plenty of room in this exercise to insert other beliefs about death in there. And my client looked at me one day when we were reviewing this list together, and she said, growing up, my mom wouldn't let us get a dog because she said, when the dog died, we would be sad. And I'll read that again for you, just kind of so it sinks in. Maybe you're driving, maybe not quite all all here. So get your ears over here. She said, growing up, my mom wouldn't let us get a dog because when the dog died, we would be sad. If that ain't some twisted, screwed up logic about grief and loss and death. Oh my goodness. There are 8,000 Good reasons not to get a dog. You live in the city, your apartment doesn't allow them. They're big, they're loud, they make noise, they make a mess. Mom would be the only one taking care of it. What about training? What about boarding when we go on vacation? There are a ton of good reasons not to get a dog. But to be told you can't get a dog because of the sadness you would feel when the dog died? Parents, that's not a good enough reason. And that's what I covered in this very first video that I did on YouTube. And I'm actually going to read a little excerpt of what I said in the video on this podcast today. Do you understand the message that you're giving your kids? Don't fall in love because it hurts when it's over. I'm not going to let you fall in love. I'm not going to let you have this experience because of how much it hurts when it's over. By telling your kids you can't get a dog or a parrot or a cat or a bird or a turtle because they'll be sad when it dies, you are telling them that it is better to feel nothing to stay how they are now than it is to feel love and grief. You are teaching them that you would rather experience nothing at all than to experience the pain of loss. You are teaching them that to feel sad is bad, that angry is bad and should be avoided at all costs, even if it means bringing something wonderful and lovable and alive and attaching into your life. You are denying them pain. Yeah, yeah, you are protecting them from pain, but you are also protecting them from and denying them love. Translation, relationships aren't worth it. Don't Father, And you know what this mentality leads to? It's kids who convince themselves that they need to stay detached, to stay on the fray of their interactions, to stay on the edges because they're going to be sad when the people and the places and the pets that they love die or go away. They fear sadness and grief. By the one phrase that's coming out of your mouth, you can't get a dog because you'll be sad when the dog dies. You're teaching your kids Not to love and not to get invested, not to feel fully because the pain of breaking is so much worse. And you know what that mentality leads to? It's adults who convince themselves that they need to stay detached, to stay on the edges, to live on the fray of their interactions because that's all they know. And that's all they've been taught about love and grief. They have never been told to experience life differently. This leads to adults who are afraid of sadness and grief and showing those emotions. We are a society who is so afraid of grief and loss and the ugliness and pain of both of those things that we are teaching our kids that emotions, period, should be avoided and are not worth our time or our investment. We want so desperately to be connected to the people in our lives. We want so desperately to do life fully and wholeheartedly with others, but we cannot experience life and love without also experiencing death and loss. Loss is one of the few universal experiences we have. So why are we telling our kids that if we don't engage, it doesn't exist? Why are we teaching our kids that grief hurts too much to participate in love in the first place. I'm actually pretty surprised by how angry this video came off. Watching it now, a little over six months later, I'm laughing at how passionate I was about this one statement that just one of my clients said to me. But it's such a real mentality that exists in our society. It's such a a big-time belief that we've convinced ourselves is logical and truthful and valid. It's said, not only by parents, but by teachers and bosses and friends and mentors, that that we shouldn't travel somewhere new for a year because it'll be too depressing to have to come back home. That we shouldn't date that person because we know that it'll be really hard and awful when it's over. That we shouldn't go down to the shelter and pick out that new pet because we'll get attached and then we'll be overwhelmingly sad when it dies. By using this statement or something similar to it, we're all teaching each other not to fall in love. And as a result, we're creating this world of, of distant, unattached, disconnected people. We don't want to bother with the depth and the love and the intimacy of relationships of attaching ourselves to things because we've been told or maybe we've experienced that the pain of whatever we love eventually dying will be too much for us to handle. And I understand that what my client's parent was trying to do in this story was protect her from the pain of losing. But if you're a human on this planet, or if you've just listened to this podcast long enough, you know that loss is an inevitable experience in all of our lives. The best way to teach our kids and our fellow humans about loss is to walk through it with them, to get the dog, to live a full, multifaceted life with him, to make memories with them and then when they die to memorialize them to honor them to share all the memories that you made together walk through it with your kids walk through grief with them and as i said in the video we accept ourselves that our kids are going to grieve and we don't live in this magical universe where we believe that we can protect them from pain we teach our kids to experience pain with others and in a healthy way We take down our own walls so we can pull them, our kids, into our hearts. And we become the connected, wholehearted people that we want to do life with. We agree to experience grief and love. I challenge you this week to be, oh, careful little mouth what you say. What are you teaching others About grief and loss, have you ever talked yourself or somebody else out of doing something they would love because the risks or the loss or the death down the line were too great or too big? I want to hear your story, and I also want to know what words or phrases you're going to start using instead. 312 seven two five three oh four three or Shelby at ShelbyForSythia.com. You can find this whole video on YouTube on my YouTube channel or search Stop Telling Your Kids Not to Fall in Love. Up next I'll answer a listener question about grieving and loving an abusive father. Hey Shelby I'm writing to you today with a question about grief that doesn't necessarily come from loss. Well, maybe. Let me back up here a sec. I've had a rocky relationship with my father for as long as I can remember. Oddly enough to say, it's become kind of a comfortable constant for me. I know what it stems from. There are parts of me that he has told me he'll never accept. Even worse than that, he has told me in the past that he sees parts of himself in me that he's always hated. Long and short of it, there's just a giant lack of acceptance on his part. Nevertheless, I work to keep our relationship at a place where he can stay in my life. Lately, though, I will admit it's been tough. There have been times in the past where I've considered cutting my father out altogether, but I don't. And I am starting to realize why. You see, there are two sides to my father. The first, and unfortunately most common, is this abusive person who takes out his frustrations with the world on me. But there's also my dad, this man who remembers from time to time that he helped to bring a child into this world and promised to love that child unconditionally. It is glimpses of that person that I'm holding out for. It is that person that I love. And I'm starting to realize that I grieve for that person quite frequently. I leave his house, I get in the car, and I sit behind the steering wheel after just getting screamed at, and I cry. Where is my dad? Where is the person I love inside that man in that house? I miss him. When will I see him again? The love that stems from this grief, is it healthy? Or is it self-deprecating? Would I be wrong to finally say enough is enough? To transition from grieving for someone to come back and instead decide to grieve the entire loss of my father? Obviously, I'm not looking for you to tell me whether or not I should cut him out from my life, but I would be interested to hear your thoughts on this grief. Alam. Ah, Alam, thank you so much for writing in again. It's good to hear from you. I am so sorry and just so heartbroken that this is your relationship with your father parental relationships are some of the trickiest because they're the only relationships we will ever have that are literally lifelong. So they start when we're born to literally the time that we die. And even if parents die before we do, which is quote unquote, the natural order of life, we still have emotional relationships that extend far beyond their physical lifetimes. And our relationship to our parents changes drastically with time from total dependence to kind of dependence to not really dependence to equals, to caregivers. I mean, our relationships with our parents are very long and very complicated. So it makes total 100% sense that you see and feel two different experiences with your father. One as present reality takes anger at the world out on you, father. And one as brief momentary flashes, the man... Who wanted you and raised you, father? Unkind father and kind father. It also makes total 100% sense that you're grieving for the second father very frequently. Who wouldn't want to experience that kind of father over what you're currently living? A father who not only doesn't accept you, but doesn't accept parts of himself. You didn't ask for advice on should I stay or should I go, just advice on whether or not this is good for you. So, here's what I can tell you about this kind of grief. Your present experience as a child with an abusive father is healthy and normal. To want to keep him in your life, to make a conscious effort to see him, to recognize and remember that he's not all bad, all of those things are healthy and normal. Demonizing our abusers can help us detach from them in the short term, but In the long term, it leads to emotional shutdown where we're not able to grieve because all of our emotions are quote unquote justified by our abuser's awful behavior. So I'm really proud of you for being able to hold these two pictures of your dad, the angry at the world abuser and the man who helped bring you into this world and promised to love you simultaneously. That's a really, really hard task. You are still seeing him as a human being and While that's really, really, really hard, it's also really, really, really healthy. So props on you. Way to go on that. A phrase that I picked up on in your email was holding out for. You wrote, it's glimpses of that person that I'm holding out for. It's that person that I love. And one phrase immediately popped into my head the moment I read that. And the phrase is hope of reconciliation. In a lot of relationships, but especially in the case of abusive or dysfunctional relationships, we are so hopeful that one day, one day, our abusers will wake up or see the light or see that we've done a lot for them or see that we've been there all along. Remember their love for us, come to their senses, get sober, change their ways, whatever whatever it is for you and reconcile their relationship to us. Something will shift or something will change and And we'll get their apology or be able to bestow our forgiveness or finally have the loving relationship with them we knew was there as a deep undercurrent all along. We'll be seen and supported and nurtured and loved for who we are, finally. So when you say you're holding out to see this side of your father again, it told me that you're still hoping for reconciliation, which is a part of grief. And from the way you phrased your question, it doesn't seem to me like you're asking if you should stay in this relationship with your father or if you should cut it off. It seems like you're asking me, should I continue to hold out hope for him, for us, for me, for a future that could look different than what we're experiencing now? Or should I grieve the reality that I won't ever get to that place with him and just take him for face value for whatever he presents to me now? And the answer to that, my lovely grief grower is I don't know. I don't know. I can't give you a concrete answer on that one. I, I do have questions for you, though, and they might be able to help you decide for yourself whether or not you'd like to continue holding out hope, or start the grieving process for a version of your father you might never know again. So take out a piece of paper and write these down. There's four different questions. So, the first question, when was the last time you quote-unquote saw this kind father? Does he appear often? What do you like about him? What do you not like about him? What does your relationship look like? The second question is the first question in reverse. When was the last time you quote-unquote saw the unkind father? Does he appear often? What do you like about him? What do you not like about him? What does your relationship look like? Third question. What does it feel like in your body and your spirit to hold on to hope? Does it feel expansive and opening or tight and restrictive? Do you feel like you're lying to yourself? Do you feel like hope is realistic? Notice in all these questions I use the word feel, not think. So try as best as you can through a mindfulness practice that you use to feel these answers in your spirit and your body as opposed to thinking them through with your mind and with logic. Fourth question is similar to the third question. In the same vein, how does it feel to say goodbye? to release this hope for the kind father and live with the unkind father as your quote-unquote new normal? Does it feel expansive and opening or tight and restrictive? Do you feel like you're lying to yourself by saying goodbye? Do you feel like saying goodbye is realistic? If you choose to hold on to hope for the kind father, Alan, I support you. Hope can help us feel like Like we're seeing the best in people and it reminds us of the good things that we remember from our past. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes the good things can come back to us in the future. If you choose to continue to hang on to this hope, know that to stay healthy in this relationship, you should also continue to hold the picture of the unkind father at the front of your mind. Do not be blinded by hope to the point of sacrificing reality that won't ever be fair to your heart or spirit. If you choose to say goodbye to this kind father and embrace your reality right now for exactly what it is without the dichotomy, I also support you. Saying goodbye is this, is this safe road for our hearts that lets our spirits know, don't look back. We're not going that way anymore. When you say goodbye, you should grieve, 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 grieve for this man, for this kind father who wanted you and promised things to you and yet treats you so blatantly otherwise. I would highly recommend doing what what's called a relationship review through the grief recovery method and, and really calling forward all the memories that you have with the kind father or have created with the kind father. Then clearing that out of your space and set boundaries and limits for the unkind father who seems to dominate your reality today. If neither of these options feels right for you, or if either of them feels too drastic, it may just be a time to wait to continue to hold these, these pictures of hope and reality in your mind until something changes on your father's end or on your end, to kind of push you in a decision either way, there is absolutely no shame in letting things continue to be how they are. Please know always and I'll say this as my closer that if you're in a place where your father's abuse crosses a boundary or an emotional line or he physically lashes out at you or a loved one, you have every right to cut off communication entirely and ban this man from your life. No amount of soul work or grief work is worth you enduring the anger and physically manifested unacceptance of a man who doesn't know how to treat others. I will 100% borrow from Dan Savage's podcast here and tell you, as adults, the best gift that we can give our parents is the gift of our presence. Make sure they deserve it. Best of luck, my grief grower, and reach out if you need us. If you've continued to hold on to hope of reconciliation, or released hope of reconciliation with one or both of your parents, leave a voicemail for the show at 312 725-3043 or email shelby at shelbyforsythia.com we would love to hear your thoughts on this you can also ask your own question to be featured on the show again by leaving a voicemail at 312-725-3043 or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com and you can find both of these contacts always in the show notes next up we'll talk to one of my favorite people Stephanie Zamora about her ex-boyfriend's suicide and how she came back to life after facing anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Before I read off Stephanie's official introduction, i just want to let everybody listening know that Stephanie was one of the very first resources I reached for in my own personal coming back. So her appearing on the show today is very personal and very special and very exciting to me. Stephanie and I actually experienced our losses within about a year of each other. And through the online tribe and the courses that she created, I found safety and support and self knowledge that I didn't have before my loss. I'm a bit of a fangirl about everything that she does. And I just so love the candid way she speaks about all the crappy stuff that happens in our lives. Stephanie Zamora is an author and life coach, business and marketing strategist, and founder of of callofthevoid.tv. Here she merges the worlds of personal development, energy healing, intuitive coaching, writing, and mixed media art to help individuals rise up and come back from the darkest, hardest chapters of life. She guides her clients through the challenging process of reorienting to their lives, relationships, and work in a way that's fully aligned with who they've become in the aftermath of loss, trauma, depression, and big life changes. After struggling with PTSD, grief, and anxiety from a sudden and traumatic loss, she navigated her own difficult healing journey and has set out to help others find the purpose of their own path using the hero's journey as a framework. Stephanie is the founder of Stephanie Zamora Media, the author of Awesome Life Tips, creator of journey mapping sessions, and is currently working on a second book titled Unravel. This interview was recorded via phone. So let's start with your lost story.
1: Yeah, so at the end of 2014, I ended a 2-year relationship with a man that I cared very deeply for but who was no longer the right fit for me and Two weeks after that and two days after I had to ask him to leave me alone, he ended up committing suicide. And it just absolutely flattened me and my business just instantly. Um, and before that, I had been doing really well. I felt like I was on a good path. I knew, I felt like I knew who I was and what I wanted to create. And everything just came to a screeching halt the moment that I got that news. And the best way that I can describe it is that it cracked me so far open that I changed just so dramatically at my core in an instant, and nothing has been the same since then. So flattened me, flattened my business. I started having massive anxiety and panic attacks and had PTSD. I would sit in front of my computer and cry because I couldn't remember who half my clients were. I couldn't remember how to build websites, which is something that I had done for years. And I couldn't even put my my own life story in order, let alone tell you what I did the day before. And it was horrible. I mean, my brain just, it just didn't work anymore. I couldn't understand logistics. If you told me to go from A to B, I could barely handle that. If you threw in a time or I needed to bring something, I would end up on my couch in a ball of tears, just like, I don't know what you want from me right now. And... After about seven months of that, it finally came to the point where I just couldn't, I couldn't run on the fumes of the aftermath anymore. I finally reached out to a mentor and told him what was going on and had a really intense healing session with him that gave me my brain back, most of it overnight and just began the journey of uncovering who I was in the aftermath and what was different and what needed to change in my life and my business and how to really, really begin healing so that I could start thriving.
2: That's phenomenal. And tell me, I mean, in the beginning of your life before that major loss, had you ever experienced anything that you could even categorize into a place of loss or was this just the first, holy crap, it's happening and it just explodes your world?
1: Yeah, that was my first experience. I had had a lot of loss. I mean, I had changed jobs I had ended relationships like I had I had gone through a lot of different types of loss in my life already but this was just the first experience that rocked me to my core and I had never experienced grief like that I mean just instantaneously you're thrust into grief which I know you know and it's just like you it's a whole different world and your relationship to everyone and everything around you is suddenly very different and the world is very jarring because you're so raw it's like you're just so cracked open that everything is harder and feels different and is more intense and not to mention all the emotions and all the experiences that you're having internally it yeah that was my first big experience with that and what about it made it so different i think it was you know i had lost grandparents before that um, family members but it was the first loss that was for one thing very unexpected it was very tragic there were a lot of aspects of it that were traumatic for me like questioning my own safety with somebody that I loved and cared for and you know that kind of rocked my sense of trust with the people around me as well as the finality of it because You know, he was there one day, and he was somebody and out in the world that I cared about. And even if he wasn't the right person for me, and even if I never saw him again, like there was something about knowing he was out in the world that was comforting to me because he was a great guy. He treated me well, and so it was a finality of like, oh my gosh, like he's just he's gone. Like he just opted out, and he's gone now. And really realizing that the way that that impacts everybody, like when it's a death and it's unexpected, and especially when it's suicide, the ripple effect from that loss is just insane. And so it, yeah, I had never, I had never had a close traumatic loss like that.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah. I hear that
2: a lot with instances of suicide, that there's, you can't really compare it to anything else because there's nothing to compare it to. It is something Mm -hmm. that has this edge of finality in it and yeah I I love what you said about how there's a comfort in knowing the people even if you're no longer with them are still floating out there somewhere in the world Um, and to not have that presence there anymore and to know and be told that that presence is not there anymore is a shock of news so I want to jump into the aftermath which I know you touched on a little bit there's a concept that I teach called mind circling, which is all of the things that we wish we would have said or done or that we did say and didn't want to say or did do and didn't want to do. and we feel like uh, they, there's these thoughts that kind of circle around in our brains that that kind of haunt us after oh, grief. Right. Um, and I'm kind of wondering what was haunting you in those moments? Like what did the aftermath feel like other than the exterior? symptoms which of course affected your business and your relationships with other people and ability to even physically pull through a day what was going on internally for you there
1: yeah that's a a great question and I think what's really common with suicide loss is that everybody who knew the person really wonders like what could I have done differently and I have some specifics of that that I'll talk about but you know with my ex-boyfriend there was There was people who felt guilt around really seemingly insignificant things. Like, oh, he had asked me for help with this and I hadn't got around to it. Like, could that have been? Like, there is a lot of guilt that comes with suicide loss for everybody that knows the person. And that, I think that awareness was, you know, in a weird way, it was comforting for me because having been so close to him, I felt massive massive amounts of guilt, and I blamed myself, and I felt like it was my fault, and, you know, what could I have said and done differently? And, you know, specifically in my situation, it was, I I needed to ask him to leave me alone. He was showing up. He wasn't respecting my boundary of asking for space after the breakup, and so I felt like I needed to be really clear, and in clearness, I turned cold. You know, I didn't feel like I could be warm and loving. And I didn't feel like I could tell him that I cared about him and that, you know, maybe one day we could be friends or, you know, I felt like I just had to be clear about you need to leave me alone. And this is still this memory can still get me really, really emotional. And I'm still working with the guilt around it of a moment where I felt like I watched him check out because, you know, the relationship was over and he was really understanding that. And so that moment specifically still lives with me to this day of what could I have said and done differently? And while I've done a lot of work around knowing that it's not my fault, I'm not to blame. There was a lot more to the story that I wasn't aware of. There was a lot of stuff going on for him that I didn't know about. But it's really what could I have done and said in that moment? And would he still be here if I had done things differently? And so that really really still to this day, like I said, comes up for me. But I think that that's the most common thing with suicide loss is the guilt of what could I have done and why Why didn't I know? Why didn't I see the signs? And with suicide, sometimes there are signs and sometimes there aren't. And that's what's really hard. Of You start to just pick through everything to look for something that might not have been there at all. And there's nothing that you could have done. And suicide especially, and in grief in general, the sister of, of guilt
2: is shame. So was there mm-hmm. any any secrecy surrounding his loss or people that, whether they were in, in your family or your network of friends or his family or his network of friends that were trying to to cover up or to hide or kind of gloss over what happened? Was there anybody that tried to change the truth of what happened?
1: No. You know, there was actually a lot more information that came to light after the fact that I didn't know that, and you know, his story isn't mine to share, but a lot of information that kind of put all the pieces together to where I was able to heal more of the guilt and the blame and the shame of, oh, this was a much different story than I thought it was. And what happened actually makes a lot more sense now. And so it was more a bringing to light Things that I wasn't aware of that had been presented to me in a completely different, from a completely different perspective or in a completely different light. And so I don't think that everybody gets that blessing of having some of that information when it comes to suicide. Some people keep it all, they keep it very close to their heart, what they're going through. And having been somebody who was suicidal when I was younger, I understand that. Like you don't necessarily share that. Those feelings of people. So, in a lot of cases of suicide loss, it's completely unexpected, and there was no, again, no signs leading up to it. Nothing you could have done differently. And in the case with my ex, it turned out there was a lot of backstory that I hadn't been made aware of from much earlier in his life. And so, it was actually a very helpful and healing process to learn that information. It didn't wipe out the the guilt and the blame and the shame that I was experiencing because that took a lot more work with myself and and healing and lots of processing, but it was helpful to have more information.
2: Yes, absolutely. I can imagine, and especially in the midst of grief, um, I know for me personally and for a lot of people, the search for information of why things happened, how they happened, where they happened, when they happened is is almost the more information we get, we think the better we'll feel uh, about Mm -hmm. everything that's happened. And I'm interested, you used a phrase that I really liked, a way that was running on the fumes of the aftermath. Yeah. Um, what, what moment was it in the aftermath where you, you told yourself, I, I can't live like this anymore, and you and you sought the help of this mentor that you knew? Was it, was it like a, a moment in time or one day you just woke up and you're like, this is going to be the last day I do this? Uh, what did that, that coming back start to look like? for you
1: yeah it was a, a very specific week where it kind of came to head and for me running on the fumes of the aftermath was I didn't eat and sleep for months and even when I started eating like I couldn't there was like three foods that I could eat I could stomach and then I could hardly eat any of them and in order for me to sleep without sleeping pills I would go for runs or I would go to the gym and I would just work my body or run until my legs gave out. So I was literally running on the fumes and even when I did start being able to get more food in, my anxiety was so intense that to sit still at a networking meeting that I was part of, I would have to pull on my fingers under the table. I mean, to the point that they would ache. Like I just had so much anxiety coursing through me and I wasn't sleeping well, even when I started sleeping. So I was just not healthy I wasn't like my body was just all out of sorts and the specific week my memory was getting worse and worse and I had started seeing a new person and I remember that particular week I went with him to one of his jobs and I was working like while he was working and I was just sitting there like sobbing and I couldn't remember. I couldn't code anymore. Like it got to the point where I just sat there looking at the mess of (laughs) letters and characters and I couldn't make sense of them. And I couldn't, I was like, am I going to have to learn this all over again? It took me years to get to where I am now. I don't know who these clients are. Like people are upset with me because I'm not responding to their emails because I didn't even remember I was supposed to. And Having stepped into a new relationship, you know, there was expectation there. There were plans being made. And I think it was the overwhelm of all of it all at once that I just – I didn't know what to do anymore. And I was part of this networking group, and my mentor is in it. And I went over and I told him, I was like, I need help. Like, I can't – I can't work anymore. I can't even – You know, I would have to go through a whole process of locking my door where I had to memorize what I was wearing and tell myself where I was going because five minutes later I was going to wonder if I even closed the door because I would literally lose moments. They would just disappear, and I wouldn't know where things went or why I was where I was. And I told him that, and it was actually it was really nice because he reflected back to me that it was, obvious externally that something wasn't right with me and he was like you know I have noticed that you haven't fully been here for a while and I was wondering like where did you go where did she go and this makes perfect sense and it had not occurred to me that I had PTSD and he gave a name to it and you know I think that there is positive and negative to labels and at the time it was helpful for me to have a label that was like oh this is what's happening like there is a thing happening in my body in response to something else and it's something that I can work with and so he was able to help me start working with that PTSD and recognize that okay I have trauma and the trauma comes from these specific moments and these specific things so that I could really start working with it.
2: Yeah I love um, being able to finally hit on a name of this is what's happening and this is what's going mm-hmm. on with me and that and that he was able to provide that insight with you. Did you guys Share, or I don't want to use the word um, commiserate, but did you, was there like a mutual bonding? And I've also been here before.
1: So he has worked with a lot of people around a lot of different traumatic experiences. And he actually would fly to a small city up in Canada and work with a community that had a lot of suicide loss and actually had helped them reduce their suicide rate tremendously in the time that he was working with him. So he didn't have, um, a direct experience that was like mine, but he has been around quite a bit of trauma and grief and suicide and just horrible, horrific things that people have gone through. So for him, it was like, oh, of course, like of course this is what your body and your mind is doing in response. And and so there was a comfort in that for me of like people around me understood that I had been through something, but nobody had had experienced anything similar. So nobody could fully understand and help me, especially when I was having panic attacks or when I would talk to my mom, you know, she would send me supplements for, this should help your brain. And people were trying to help me to the best of their ability, but to connect with somebody that had been around a lot of trauma and for him to to just be like, oh, of course, (laughs) like, let's work on this now. That was huge for me.
2: I love how affirming that is for you. And tell me about the type of work that you did to come back.
1: Yeah. So the healing process with my mentor was a big part of that. We actually did a couple and I was getting certified in acupressure. So I did some acupressure, but the biggest thing for me was actually discovering the hero's journey, which is a narrative pattern created by Joseph Campbell. And I was, I had kind of accidentally started writing my next book, and same mentor, he recommended The Writer's Journey, which is all about how to use The Hero's Journey to write more specifically screenplays, but it just breaks down to the different steps, and The Hero's Journey, for anyone who doesn't know, is a narrative pattern that has three primary phases and 12 core steps that basically make up the foundation of every story, myth, movie, book that we have read or have come across and when I realized I was writing this book I started studying it and I remember specifically so it was in the fall of that first year after my loss and I had started to get my brain back I was struggling with am I ever gonna get it fully back like I was noticing a lot of the places where I just wasn't the same anymore and I was really struggling with that So there was, I think it was Thanksgiving, and I was just a hot mess again. Like, I felt like I was having the second coming of, like, the grief, like, all these waves of grief, and the PTSD had gotten triggered again, and I was really feeling like, I'm never, like, what is wrong with me? Am I never going to get out of this? And so I kind of instinctually picked up the hero's journey and started reading through it, and I had this moment of, oh, my gosh, like, the fall is not the hard part. It's actually the comeback because the fall, it kind of just happens, uh, especially in traumatic losses or unexpected losses or all of the things that we go through in life.' it's it's, it's actually quite easy to fall <laughs> to face plant, to hit rock bottom. And there's no there's not necessarily going to be a bounce back when we hit rock bottom, and there's not momentum to carry you all the way around on the journey. So, We get to that death and rebirth. We get to that rock bottom place. And I finally, it clicked for me that I really actually had to choose to come back. Like it wasn't just going to happen with time. I had to make the choice that, okay, I've learned what I need to learn. I've I've been to the very bottom of this grief journey and I'm doing the healing work. And now I actually have to claw my way back from the depths of it. And it was really difficult because you know, when there's especially when there's trauma and PTSD involved, but if it's grief, if it's loss, if it's there's anxiety, it's really hard to choose it. Like it wasn't this inspiring moment where it was like, oh I'm gonna choose to come back and then bam everything was amazing. It was every moment of every day making different choices, like making the choice to get out of bed and get dressed, making the choice to actually get ready and go out into the world even if I didn't want to, making the choice to try to work on my business when I would rather just sleep or making making those tiny choices you know I would go to the gym and I would be kind of having a temper tantrum like a three-year-old the whole way there (laughs) and I might go and like pick up a weight and lift it twice and then go home and cry but like that's what the choice looked like to get to a place where I was moving through it and I was choosing a different outcome and I was really, really coming back from, you know, the really deep depths and the grips of grief. That for me was one of the biggest aha moments of it's a choice. Like and it's it's hard and we have to keep choosing it every moment of every day. I absolutely love that and it speaks so well to my own experience
2: because you're right, it is very easy it's easy to fall. Life kind of just Mm -hmm. puts those grief upon us we don't i mean and there are ways we consciously choose grief as in like initiating breakups or making moves across the country or filing divorce papers like these are griefs that we can we can instigate and then we feel the grief that comes from the fall but um, the real grief comes from being in that darkness and realizing that me staying here is totally up to me. Like am I going to live mm-hmm. here or am I just visiting? Let's see, where do we want to go next with this? Tell me about how that those moments of choosing to consciously come back are informing your life today. Like do you still feel like you're making as weighted of a choice every day or has it dissolved into routine for you or does it vary? What does that look
1: like? Yeah, it really varies. So it's gotten easier for sure. And there have definitely been distinct moments in the last two and a half and a half years where I feel like, oh, like I'm back in this specific way. You know, most recently, really coming back into my business, which it took two and a half years to really reorient to my work and to my business and to how I wanted to serve and support people. And the way that I've described it is the work has become noticing where i'm bumping up against walls where there used to be doors and that has been one of the most frustrating frustrating pieces of the work is noticing again like i feel like i'm just hitting my head against a wall like i used to be able to do this and trying to do things or be a certain way the way that i was before and finally stepping back and saying okay this is one of those things that's just different about me sometimes there's a block like sometimes there's another layer of the grief or the trauma or the guilt that needs to be worked through for me to unlock that part of myself again but a lot of it has been realizing again like once we go through something that is altering us at our core that has changed who we are especially so quickly and so intensely it's about reorienting to literally everything around us because we are so different And that has been the work that I still do where I notice, okay, like this doesn't, I can't be that person anymore. So how do I turn in a new direction and start walking a new path? How do I start finding a new way of being? How do I let go of the idea that I'm this type of person when she's not here anymore? Again, some things can be worked on to bring them back to life and other things, it's about just letting that part of yourself go and figuring out who you are now. And That's been the biggest work that I still do today and really just incorporating everything I've learned into the new body of work I'm creating, the new website that I have and teaching the hero's journey. And yeah, just continually reorienting. And I think it's important with any loss, especially the big traumatic ones, the ones that just change you so quickly, is it takes time. And I remember six or seven months into my loss, Working with a coach of mine and her telling me like one day you're going to look back and you're going to ask yourself, how did I ever think that I could do this or be this way so quickly after what I'd been through? And I didn't, I didn't understand that. And I, I really get that now. I mean, I'm still finding places that need work. I'm still finding ways that I need to reorient. I'm I still have triggers that bring up my PTSD, that bring up another layer for me to work with and clear. So it just, it takes time. It does. And I always tell people, people are, I hate uh, the
2: euphemism that time heals all because it's all Mm -hmm. dependent also on what you do with your your time. Um, Yeah. Because the passage of time helps in the sense that we're able to look back and kind of, we have more life to have lived, to have a wider lens to view our grief from. But also you have to do the work of, even noticing that and then of course the work on moving yourself forward as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to know if you could, if you could write a love letter or maybe you already have to the person that you were the day that you found out about his suicide, what would you tell her about what's ahead?
1: I think that I would tell her. Yeah. One of the things is it's, it's going to take time, like be patient with yourself Because I really did try to jump back into my business specifically very quickly. And I would also tell her, really face into everything that's coming up for you right now. And I I did that very instinctually a lot of the times. But there were places I resisted it. And face into whatever emotion or feeling or experience is coming up. Like, don't resist it. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try to rush through the process of fixing or healing it. Like just be with it and feel it all the way through. And don't let anyone tell you what they think about it. Like just be with that experience because that's where the biggest healing and wisdom and insights and lessons came for me. And really that's what allowed me to clear all of the stuff that I've cleared so far was just not trying to bypass it not trying to rush through it not trying to use the oh you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel and there's everything happens for a reason and all that stuff is fine and true but it's not helpful in the moment it's like you just got to be in it and you have to let it be okay that you're in it and that you're feeling this way and that maybe you are in a ball on the kitchen floor just crying your eyes out and that's the work that's what needs to happen and just let it be okay and process it, and you're gonna move through it. That's so healing and
2: so uplifting for people who are in the immediate aftermath right now. There's this there's this sense of co easy that comes with mm-hmm. it because holy crap, is it gonna change your life? Um, yeah. Tell us in your own words. I know you mentioned the website and you mentioned the new book, but kind of give us a little rundown of everything that you're working on right now, as well as where people can find you.
1: Yeah. So I just launched a new site. It's callofthevoid.tv. And it's built around this body of work, which is using the hero's journey as a tool to really rise up and come back from the dark, hard chapters of life, whether that's grief or trauma or depression or just big life transitions, like you talked about earlier. And more importantly, this is what I'm really passionate about is the work of how do you reorient to your own life in the aftermath? So how do you reconnect with yourself and who you've become? How do you reorient to your relationships, to your work and really redefining who you are and what you want to create. And that's just, that to me has been quite possibly the hardest part of it. You know, there is the comeback, there's the healing work that is pretty intense, but How do you really rise up and come back? So I'm working on my next book, which is about pretty much everything that we've talked about, my own journey through this. I have a coaching offering, which is journey mapping, so how to uncover the purpose of whatever whatever path you're walking now. And then I have a lot of great articles and videos and resources for people who are going through it. That's lovely. And I, I love having found a kindred spirit in you, and I love the opportunity
2: to have gotten to talk to you today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And you're doing such amazing work. And I know if people are listening, they obviously already know you, but just just follow everything that she's doing because you are fantastic and you're doing really, really important work. So thank you. Thank you,
0: Stephanie. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you to one of my coming back mentors and generally all-around awesome person, Stephanie Zamora. She came back by seeking mentorship in others and using the hero's journey as a framework for her life. If you'd like to check out Stephanie's work, you can find her latest projects over at callofthevoid.tv. She's also offering one-on-one journey mapping sessions to help you uncover the purpose of your path. My personal favorite way to follow Stephanie is on her Facebook and Instagram pages, where she shares profound ideas and excerpts from her new book, Unravel. You can find all of her contact information in the show notes. Thank you for being a friend. Remember to call or write in with your thoughts on grief on the Golden Girls before our first fun one, episode 10, airs on July 19th. We'll look at grief through the eyes of Dorothy, Rose, Blanche, and Sophia, and maybe we'll sing a little more. Please continue to subscribe and tell your friends all about this show. We are opening up the conversation on grief and loss one episode at a time, and you never know what somebody you love could be going through. Thank you always and also to the amazing, talented Addie Goldstein for composing our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby for Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at griefguideshelbyforsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. To leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail at 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelby com, subject line podcast. As always, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.